morning comes from John chapter 3. We're going to be in the first 19 verses of John chapter 3 this morning. Probably a passage that most of us knows. We've probably studied it from the time we were children, but we're going to take a, a little bit different look at it this morning. So, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. Your Bible may say the heading, You must be born again. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless as one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here's the part you might be a little more familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, and he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's the end of our passage we're going to be looking at this morning. Welcome to Bloomingdale, friends. We're continuing on in our series that looks at the ministry of Jesus. Um, we're going to, we are going to be leading up to the time of the crucifixion. There's a lot to cover in three years that Christ walked the earth that we're not going to cover in the ten weeks between now and Easter. But we're going to look at some of the high points along the way. Uh, like, I, like I said a few weeks ago, we're, gonna, we're going to look at some of the more important passages, not to diminish the works of Christ, but some of the maybe better known uh, times that, that he did miracles and uh, popular teachings that we have known growing up and taking a, a little bit deeper look at them. This week we're going to look at a passage that includes probably one of the most known but most misunderstood verses in the Bible, John 3.16. Now we, we, we see it all over the place. We probably memorized it in perfect King James English as children like myself and as part of vacation Bible school or Sunday school, and we could do it. But we're going to look a, a little more at the context that surrounds this to get a little truer picture of what's being taught in this verse. Um, we see it all over the place. You know, if we're watching sporting events on TV, we'll see somebody holding up a sign that says John 3.16. Uh, or 
you know, there, there have been people that have mangled that for their own purposes. But it, it's something that we're going to look at an understanding of this within the context of when was this taught, who was he talking to, and what does this passage mean? Uh, there's a lot to go into here, but uh, first question that we have to look at is, who's Nicodemus? Verse 1 tells us that he was a Pharisee, but not just any Pharisee. It, it said he was a ruler of the Jews. Well, he wasn't in government, he was a Pharisee. That was the religious leaders. That's, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and that was the ruling council of 70 Jews, 70 Pharisees, that they ruled the religious portion of life for Jews in that area in that time when Christ walked the earth. Uh, if you go back to the history of the Pharisees, uh, they started about 300 years before the birth of Christ because there were some religious leaders that said, people are not living the way they should. We need to get back to the Word of God. We need to get back to the things that God prescribed in the Old Testament for us to do. And the original intent of the Pharisees was very noble. It was getting people back to God. It was, you know, we need to follow these rules. Maybe it's not just enough for us to stick to the original ten. Maybe we need to stick with the whole Levitical code plus the teachings that have come along along the ways. So that ten balloons up to, depending on which scholar you read, either 614 or 623 laws. Most of them were prescribed only for priests. But the Pharisees said... This is what we need to hold to. And then later it became, this is what we all need to hold to. And then maybe the Pharisees didn't always follow those laws. And that's where we see them. By the 300 years later, that's where we see them in the time of Christ. So this, this is kind of the background of the Pharisees. Nicodemus is part of that group. And not just part of that group, but a part of the 70 of the Sanhedrin, which were the ruling council of the Pharisees. And... On top of that, he has the title ruler of the Jews. That was a term, that that's what it's translated into in English, but that term was reserved only for a super high respected member of the ruling class of Pharisees or a prince. That was about it. So this is how, this is how Brian Bell describes Nicodemus. If heaven could be earned from one's accomplishments, Nicodemus would have change left over. Nicodemus was at the top of the religious ladder looking down. Now we see him stepping down from that ladder to walk the streets looking for answers. So the passage mentions that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. As a kid, when I learned this, you know, I had preconceived notions of, of, of this. You know, a lot of us when we have been taught this, when we read this, when we looked at this, that uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night uh, to, you know, hide, make sure he's not seen with Jesus, you know, that he's not going to lose his spot in the Sanhedrin for even talking to Jesus. You know, that's, that's what we get into mind, right? Uh, that's what Peter Pett's commentary, that leans that direction. Now, in studying this passage, I ran across this uh, snippet from Barnes' commentary that made me kind of rethink this. And I'll share this with you because this is something that makes us look a little bit deeper into the culture that they were in. So here's what Barnes says. 
It's not mentioned why he came by night. It might have been that being a member of the Sanhedrin, he was engaged all the day. Or it may have been because the Lord Jesus was occupied all the day in teaching publicly and working miracles, and that there was no opportunity for conversing with him as freely as he desired. Or it may have been that he was afraid of the ridicule and contempt of those in power, and fearful that it might involve him in danger if publicly known. Or it may have been that he was afraid that if it were publicly known he was disposed to favor the Lord Jesus, it might provoke more opposition against him and endanger his life. Since no bad motive is imputed to him, it is most in accordance with Christian charity to suppose that his motives were such as God would approve, especially as the Savior did not reprove him. We should not be disposed to blame men where Jesus did not, and we should desire to find goodness in every man rather than be ever on the search for evil motives. That, that's a, that was something that, that made me you know, rethink. Maybe we're a little too hard on Nicodemus here. As we go through this passage, we'll, we'll see a little bit more why. But I, I think that last statement that he made, that you know, we should desire to find goodness in every man, that's one that we can learn from this morning. That sounds like uh, you know, maybe something I, I would uh, read in the faith and practice, you know, seeking to, to find the good in every person. You know, that, that's something that we, we can take this and use this as a springboard. So in verse 2, it also notes that uh, Nicodemus said that Jesus was a teacher from God. That's, that's a very important statement. Because we read that in our context 2,000 years later in English and we go, duh. Because we've seen the whole Gospels. We've seen the whole Bible. We know that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Nicodemus didn't quite have all that to work from. He did have the Old Testament. Being a Pharisee, he had a lot of it. He had access to a lot of it. But during that time when new teachers came, what the Pharisees, and especially the Sanhedrin, would do is they would grade this teacher. You know, is it in line with, with what Scripture already tells us? And does it fit our preconceived notions of what we think the Messiah is going to be? Or does it fit our preconceived notions of what we think a prophet's going to look like? So for Nicodemus, as one of the members of the Sanhedrin, and an important member of the Sanhedrin, to come to Jesus and say, I know you're from God because you can't do what you do without God's help. That puts Jesus at a special, special place. Maybe not to the level of the Messiah, but Nicodemus is already saying, okay, there's something different here. And he also uses the term that we translate rabbi. That's also a very important thing because for the most part, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, those in the religious leading structure, the only time they called Jesus rabbi was sarcastically. And that's what, not what Nicodemus is doing here. He uses that term rabbi as a honor within the, and that he was recognized within the Jewish religious and educational structure. And for us to look back on that culturally, we can scratch our heads because we know that based on Jesus having been a carpenter, we know at some point during the line, about the time Jesus was 12 or before, some rabbi told Jesus, go back and learn the trade of your father because you're not good enough. I would hate to be that rabbi. But we see that in spite of you know, him being turned away by the religious elite, even though Jesus was of the right lineage, because we see that in the book of Matthew. 
Somebody has turned him away along the line. And here comes Nicodemus at the beginning of Jesus' ministry calling him rabbi. In verses 3 to 6, uh, Jesus explains to Nicodemus the need to be born again. And Nicodemus is coming into this with all of his teaching from the Jewish educational system. All of the teaching that he had either partaken of as a young man and given out as an older man, as a leader. And this flies in the face of all that. He's saying, you know, Jesus about is telling him, you must be born again. Or in our culture, we could call that born again, born of the Spirit. Gill explains in his commentary that Nicodemus had some very big preconceived notions. And it was hard for Nicodemus because everything that he walked into, into this, he knew, he knew it. He knew it in his heart of hearts. He has fulfilled the law as best he can. He's done all the rituals. He's done the washings. He's of the right family. He's of the right group. And we're going to get into this in a little bit. So he's already in, in his mind. And Jesus tells him something new. And he's saying, Lord, I don't get it. I don't get it. Gil says it this way. Nicodemus, according to the general sense of the nation, thought that when the Messiah came and his kingdom was set up, they could all share in it without any more ado. They being descendants of Abraham and having him for their father, but Christ assures them that he must be born again in distinction from and opposition to his first birth by nature, which was vile, polluted, carnal, and corrupt, being conceived in sin, shaped in iniquity, and was a transgressor from the womb, and by a nature a child of wrath. And in opposition to this, his descent from Abraham, or being born of him and his seed, this would be no avail to him in this case, nor give him any right or privileges and ordinances of the kingdom of God or the gospel. So what he's saying is Nicodemus walks into this encounter thinking, I'm already in, I, already, I got this. You know, you don't need to tell me more. I, I know it, but I, I want to find out how, how you address it. And Jesus just tells him something that totally blows him out of the water. He says, you must be born again. He's saying, what you had, what you were relying on for your faith, for your security in eternity, isn't near enough. Now, Jesus had everything to stand on to make this claim. Because he could have went back to Ezekiel, he could have went back to Isaiah, he could have went back to anywhere in the, in the Old Testament, which we see later he does. He could have went to Isaiah 53 and says, all your righteousness is only as good as filthy rags. And that's the clean uh, interpretation of that. You know, the dirtiest, nastiest rags you can find are still cleaner than you and your sin before God. Doesn't matter who your daddy is, your granddaddy, or whoever. It's not enough outside of grace. And that's what Nicodemus is learning here. Verses 8 through 10, they, they talk about the spiritual self versus the physical self. You know, Jesus gives the, the example that we know that the wind exists. We can't see the wind. We can only see the effects of the wind. It goes where it wants to, and we don't know where it goes to or comes from, but we see its effects. And he likens that to the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, we, we don't see the Holy Spirit. We know that it's there. We know that it is there based on the Bible. We know that as part of the Trinity, we can't put a face with it. But we see the effects all around us. We see lives that are changed as a result of the Holy Spirit. We see his work in preparing us to 
share Christ with other people. We see its effects in calling others to the work of ministry all around us. So Kaufman, he puts it this way. He says, the person born of the Spirit is similar to both the Spirit and the wind that it's impossible for the unregenerate people to understand or control him or her. They do not understand his or her origin or final destiny. Nicodemus should have understood this too since the Old Testament revealed the Spirit's sovereign and incomprehensible working, for example, in Ezekiel 37. So, verses 8, 9, 10, Nicodemus is still having difficulty understanding what Jesus is teaching. It's, like I said before, it's entirely opposite of the law that has been taught him all through his upbringing, all through the time he's teaching others. Um, Pat's commentary shows it's a, little, it's a little too easy for us in our context to give Nicodemus a hard time. Because we see, we see the whole picture, having the Bible. Nicodemus didn't yet. He had, the, he had the Word made flesh in front of him in Jesus Christ. But he didn't have the whole picture of everything that was to happen and was going to happen. So, Jesus starts walking about being, talking about being born of the Spirit and born of Spirit and water. And Nicodemus, he thinks, okay, I understand this. I understand the purpose of water. It's purifying. And this is what Pet tells us. To him, water is for outward purifying, and his religious agenda is found in seeking to keep God's laws assiduously and totally in order to be in true covenant with God to achieve eternal life in the future. The thought of the freedom and new life that comes through the Spirit of God is foreign to him. He's baffled. Because, like we talked about last week, in those big stone pots of water that was for purifying, it was, you know, shake the contamination of maybe having accidentally got too close to a Gentile, someone who's not a Jew, you know, wash that off. That was all outward. And Jesus is telling him, it's not the outward that matters, it's the inward. God's looking at the heart, the spirit. The Pharisees are looking at the outward appearance of keeping all of these laws, whether they did or not. So Nicodemus' entire background is about keeping the law. Grace is a foreign concept to them. And that's where you'll see in a lot of these interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees as we go through the following weeks that method and concept of grace is so totally opposite to the ways that the Pharisees operated. So as we move on into verses 14 through 18, Jesus lays out the message that is grace, that is the gospel, that God loved us and sent his son to die for us so that we could have that redemption, so that we can have that inward cleansing that the Pharisees lacked. It shows that that mercy could only come through Jesus paying the debt we owe for our sin. So in verse 16, we see the verse that we all know. And we see that love that God lays out. Kaufman describes that love like this. God's love for mankind is pure, spontaneous, and constant. Jesus did not die on the cross to compel God to love people, but because he already loved them, the cross being a result of God's love, not the cause of it. That's very important because grace is not about what we can do. It's about what's already been done. And that's what he's teaching Nicodemus, that all your laws just show you more your need for grace. That's a 
big theme running throughout a lot of Paul's letters is that it's not about what we can do, it's about what's already been done. And like I said at the beginning of this message, John 3.16 is often misunderstood because it's so often removed from context as one piece out from verses 17 through 19. Because we see a little bit of it in verse 16, but as, you, as we go on, we see deeper in what God's plan is in verses 17 through 19. Because if you just read 3.16, you miss this that follows. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. So, many times people's objections to the gospel is they see the Bible, they see church, they see religion as just this list of do's and don'ts, and we're looking down on you, and we're, we're saying you're not good enough. But if they miss verses 17 through 19, they, they don't see the purpose that none of us are good enough. It's all because of what Christ has done. It's Christ who makes us acceptable through God. Because the law existed before Jesus walked the earth. The law was already there. The Pharisees had the law. The Jews had the law. They had the law showing they weren't good enough. Because they still had the sacrificial system. They said without blood there's no remission of sin. That's in the book of Hebrews. They saw that the law was there condemning them already before Christ came with grace. So the law was there to show them a need for a savior. That Paul hits this theme very heavily in the book of Romans. So Nicodemus and the other Jewish leaders, they had a whole entirely different view of what the Messiah was supposed to be. They had it in their mind. As they read the Old Testament, they, and they lived under Roman rule for a couple hundred years, they're seeing, you know, we think this Messiah is going to be this military political leader that's going to give us back our independence from Rome and is going to kick Rome out and going to establish his kingdom on earth and we're going to be right in the middle of it and we're, we're going to have a high place in it and it's going to be great. And then comes Jesus. Their plan was not God's plan. Jesus says, it doesn't matter who you are. God loves you. It doesn't matter who you were born to. It doesn't matter even what country you're from. God still loves you and cares for you. It doesn't matter what you've done or not done. God still loves you. And this was totally foreign to the, to the Pharisees. Kaufman puts it this way. He says, the Sanhedrinists and all the leaders of Israel were anxiously expecting a Messiah who would put the Romans out of their country, blast the whole Gentile world with the judgment they hoped God would execute upon them, and restore the political economy of his chosen people. Here, Christ flatly rejected any notion that he had come to execute any such judgment upon the Gentiles. Hence, he said, God sent not the Son into the world to judge the world. So, without Jesus... The world was already condemned. Sin took care of that. Sin was already a penalty on the people. And verses 17 through 19 show that without trusting in Christ, people were already condemned. 
And Jesus sets this message of grace apart by showing that that grace is free to choose. It's a matter of, it's there, you can choose to accept it or reject it. But if you reject it, that's where you're condemned. It's not if you accept it. If you accept it, you're not condemned because you're relying on Jesus. Bet describes it like this in his commentary. He stresses that it's not God who condemns men, rather they condemn themselves. When they see God's supreme word, Jesus, revealing his glory and the glory of God, their very refusal to acknowledge him condemns them. So what he's saying here, and this is the theme throughout John, the theme of light. You know, I am the light of the world. No one comes to me except by the Father. You know, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So, all this goes to show us that Christ came into a world that was very dark with the effects of sin. Have anybody ever been to a cave? Some place like Merrimack Caverns or some place like that. And they take you back in this dark room and then they just kill all the lights. You know, that's dark. And then what does one person do? They turn on one little light and the, and the darkness flees. That's a picture of what Christ did in coming into this world. He was in a very dark place. People have turned away from God. People have turned to their own darkness. And then this one person comes who's the light. And the darkness flees. We'll see that as we go through uh, looking at Jesus and the deeds that he did and the miracles and the teachings as it leads up to the cross. And that's the spiritual state that Christ was born into. And as believers, we have that same light in us to share. We have the same spirit as in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit in us by following Christ. And that's in us for our communities to share. There's communities near us and that we live in that are very dark places. There are very dark things going on. There are people that have been made very dark decisions. And there are people that just they don't know how to access the light. Or they've been shown the light in a corrupted way and it's hurt them and they've turned away from it. In our community, there's a lot of people like Nicodemus. You know, my, my grandma and grandpa was this or that in the church, so I'm okay. My mommy and daddy took me to VBS when I was a little kid and I'm okay. Or, you know, I... I, when I first came to Park County about 10 years ago, a lot of times I'd be talking with young adults and uh, they, you know, I'd ask them kind of about their faith journey and they'd say, oh yeah, mom and dad took me to such and such church uh, when I was a little kid and I was even baptized in that church. And, and then my next follow-up question is, okay, what, what church are you plugged into? What are you doing to follow Christ today? If you made that decision, then what are you doing today? And the answer was usually... Nothing. You know, that, that was just good. That, I, I should get back into church because my kids need it. No, you should get back into church because you need it. So, it comes to that point of, you know, are you living that light? If you have that light within you, are you living it? Nicodemus, he thought he knew the right answers. He was from the right family. He was going to, going to the right church member of the right people, but something still drew him to Jesus. And Jesus gave him that, an, that true answer 
of grace, that true answer that he needed to be spiritually reborn and putting his trust in Jesus, putting his trust in God's plan, not tradition, which was man's plan. And the more things change, the more things stay the same. Today, we look at people, what do they do? They fill their lives with anything but Jesus. They rely on tradition, or they rely on what they're going to do. But not Jesus. You know, what are they going to choose? You know, that, that's a choice we can't make for them. We can show them the light and say, this is a light. It's not dark. This is a light. This is what we need to follow when it's dark outside. But they can ultimately say, okay, I'm going to follow the light, or no, I'm not going to. That's, that's all the choice there is. And it says, in verse 19, it says, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. People can make that choice for themselves, but it's our job as believers to make disciples that make disciples. That's why we do what we do. That's why we give people opportunities to introduce them to Jesus so that we can give them that choice if they can follow the light or remain in darkness. So the Gospels later tell us, you know, all is not lost with Nicodemus, and this is why I say that maybe we're too hard on Nicodemus. Because the Gospels later tell us that after the crucifixion of Christ, who obtains the body of Christ so that he can have a proper burial and fulfill prophecy? Any guesses? Nicodemus. He was the one who arranged for Jesus' body to be taken down from the cross. Because that traditionally, and I don't want this to sound gross, traditionally when Romans did crucifixion, they left people up on the cross until the birds and wild animals did what they did. And they would leave them up there for several days. And Nicodemus and and Whoever else came and said, this is not right, this is not in Jewish tradition, take him down so that he can have a proper burial. Because aside from the work of Nicodemus, you know, if Christ is left on the cross, there's no tomb for him to go to that three days later he can rise again. So, maybe we're too hard on Nicodemus because maybe he became a believer. We, we don't know. We don't know his place in the early church outside of he was the one that arranged for Christ to be taken down and given to a borrowed tomb from Joseph of Arimathea. So we'll, we'll see that when we do our lesson on the crucifixion in about 10 weeks. But that's, that's the next place we see Nicodemus. So maybe he made decisions that we don't know about. We, we don't know outside of heaven. But what we can take from this lesson, we'll, we'll close up our time of teaching this morning with what Bridgeway Commentary says about verses 16 through 18. God's purpose in sending his son into the world was positive. He wanted people to believe in him and so have eternal life. But if people prefer the darkness of their own sin to the light of salvation through Jesus, they bring judgment upon themselves by their own choice. So this is the message of the gospel in a nutshell. God sent Jesus as the promised Messiah to redeem us from our sins, and we have a choice to follow him or not to follow him. If we choose to follow him, we gain eternal life. And our relationship with God is restored. That's the gospel. So this morning, that choice is up to each one of us. It's up to each one in our community. What are we going to do? What are we going to follow? 
who are we going to follow? So as we close our time of teaching this morning, we're going to have a time of quiet worship in the Quaker tradition. I encourage you to ask yourself the following question. Who in my sphere of influence needs to hear the good news of Christ this week? Who needs to be introduced to the light this week that I know, a neighbor, a friend, family member, somebody I know in this community? Who needs to desperately hear that message this week? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today, and thank you for the time that we can learn from the story of Nicodemus, Lord. I pray that we would learn from this man seeking to understand more from Christ, that uh, we can also seek to show people in our community about the light that Christ shares for each one of us. In your name I pray. Amen.